Lord, we just come before you and thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and show us what you'd have us to see. And bless this fellowship and just the time that we have tonight and cover the church over this next week. In your son's name, amen. Psalm 119, verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore does my soul keep them. The entrance of your words give light. He gives understanding unto the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, and I longed for your commandments. Look you upon me and be merciful unto me, for you used to do unto those that love your name. Order my steps in your word, and not any iniquity have dominion, and let not any dominion, iniquity have dominion over me. Deliver me from the oppression of man, so I will keep your precepts. Make your face to shine upon your servant and teach you, me your statutes. Rivers of water run down my eyes because they keep not your law. So we're going to look at this. Uh, this is the letter pay. It uh, has the idea of mouth or speaking. It says, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore does my soul keep them. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. His testimonies, what God gives testimony of. Now, when you think about the word testimony, that is literally just the same thing as to give, give a statement in court. You know, tell them, tell them what you know. This is what it means when we give our testimony before people. We tell people what we know about God. And here it says, God's testimonies are wonderful. You know, are wonderful. You know, they are marvelous. And this is something that, as I walk with God, the longer I walk with God, the more I realize how wonderful and marvelous God is. Just to watch what he does, watch how he covers life, watch how he brings everything together. Uh, just, a, just a short 46 years of walking with God and, and seeing him change and, and make things happen and bring everything together, and how he brings everything together and I agree with David on this. Therefore, does my soul keep them? The more I know about God, the more I desire to be obedient to God. And this is something wonderful. I've watched over the years. I've seen my testimony. I've watched what he's done in other people's lives. I've seen how he's changed my life, others' lives, the biographies that I encourage people to read. How God changes people's lives and meets their needs motivates us then to follow him because of his faithfulness. And this is the wonderful thing about walking with God. And you get to say, wow, this is wonderful, God. I just want to keep seeking you because of all of this. And it says, the entrance of your words give light. It gives understanding unto the simple. The entrance of his word give light, illumination, doctrine. Um, one of the studies that I like to do, that like to do when I do this, how to study the Bible is, just a simple study on the word light. Uh, because it is all about the illumination of God's word. His word brings in illumination. His word brings in doctrine. Brings in just a light of understanding. Teaches us what to do, what not to do. Keeps us out of trouble if we will listen to him. Uh, and just follow his ways. And even then, when hard things do happen, we go, okay, God, you're doing it for a reason, and I'm going to just still hold on to what you're doing. 
And this is the good news when we're saying it gives understanding to the simple. You know, understanding to the simple. You know, and that kind of means naive. And this is something that God wants us to be simple but not naive. He wants us to be somebody who's listening to his word and growing in his word. And I've shared with you, when I first started working in the restaurants, I was pretty naive. I thought people were basically good. I did not pay attention to God's word. And after enough people stole from me, I got to be very quickly the opposite. You know, I started looking at everybody. I went way too far the other direction because so many people were stealing from me. And you know, we got to be able to look at this in a kind of an inter interesting place. God's word brings light and it gives understanding. Understanding, full knowledge, full comprehension. You know, the wonderful thing about God is how he brings things in. So many times when I talk to people, they'll say something and all of a sudden I'm going, okay, God, you're putting something on my mind. I don't know exactly what it is, but you're putting a check on this. I had one person one time, he wanted to speak to the church and I'm going, I don't know, why do you want to speak to the church? And the longer you talk to, to me, the more I realize you're not getting in front of this church for anything. Uh, you know, he wanted to attack the church you know, for his perceived misconducts of the church. I'm going, no, this isn't going to happen. You know, but we listen to God and say, God, what is it you want done? How do you want me to behave? How do you want me to approach people? Who's going to get shared? How, how are you going to share with them? What's going to happen? God brings understanding. He brings in light. And in verse 31, he says, I opened my mouth and pant, for I longed for your commandments. How much do we long for God's commandments? Uh, you know, we, we, we desire. Do we desire it so much that we can't get by without it? I've shared this with you. How long can you go without reading the Bible? How long can you go without being with God's people? And for our spirit, if we're not with reading the Bible, we're not in God's word, we're not spending time with his people, that's starving our soul. And our soul should react when it's being starved, just as our body will react when we're being starved. If you don't eat for a long period of time, your body will start complaining. It will do a lot of numbers of things. Number one, your stomach will growl, your It'll, it'll start twisting and tying itself up in knots. You'll be in pain. It'll, it'll let you know, it is time to eat. Feed me. Uh, some of us get that really quick. Some of us can go for a while without, without feeding our bodies. You know, the longest, though, that you can possibly go without feeding your body is approximately 40 days. And your body will shut down. And during that period of time, it will almost shut down the desire to eat. After you go about seven days without eating, it gets pretty easy to continue your fast or not eating. But you get closer and closer to that 40-day mark and your body starts saying, okay, uh, we're needing to be fed. How many people have not fed their spirit for that long a period of time? Not even open the word, not listen to God's message from any pastor, not been in a church. And God is saying... In this, I opened my mouth and I panted for you. you know, have you ever seen the dog panting for water? You know, it's hot. They want, they want drink and they're just panting. It's how they try to cool themselves off. Many animals are like this. They, they pant. They're trying to cool themselves off. They're trying to fulfill themselves. 
and it says, I longed for your, I longed for your commandments. You know, I desired, you know, heavily desired your commandments. Do you have that kind of hunger for God's word? Hopefully you do. Yeah. I love to get into God's word. Practically nothing else I'd rather do than be in his word. But, you know, this is something that he's saying, I long for it. Verse 132. Look you upon me and be merciful unto me as you used me to do unto those that love your name. Here it seems like he's saying, you know, God, look at me and have mercy. You know, you used to look at me this way. Please look at me again. There's a repentance to this statement. Uh, maybe he's fallen away. Maybe he's lost his first love a little bit and he's no longer feeling God's presence. And this is something we have to be very careful about is our feelings running over us. Because our feelings lie to us all the time. Our feelings lie all the time to us. God, I just don't feel your presence. Well, that does not mean that God's not there. God, I just don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. Well, God still says you're his child and he's given you what you're supposed to have. Our feelings are not what we build our life on. We build our life on truth. And you know, this is something that's very important for us. We get saved because of the facts of the gospel. We are sinners. We deserve punishment. Christ died for us. We put faith in those facts. And eventually our feelings kind of come along and they ebb and flow and come and go, but the, we put our faith in the facts. Most people in their lifetime will put their faith in their feelings. I just don't feel like God loves me. I just don't feel like I should be going to church. I just don't feel like I should be doing, reading my Bible. Whatever it is that you go, and God says, forget your feelings. Most people get divorced because all of a sudden they no longer feel like they're in love. And they probably weren't in love in the first place because love is all about a choice, true love. True love is I choose to love. I base my love on facts. And if I base my love on a choice, like God's love for us, and it's called agape love, or I prefer the term objective love. God objectively loves us. And that means he chooses to love us. It doesn't matter what we do or don't do. God loves us. And if we put our faith in that fact that God loves us, then when our feelings come along and say, well, you know, you haven't seen or felt or, or had any experience with God, so he must not love you. You go, no, God loves me. He loves me objectively. He chose to love me. He will not stop loving me because God never changes. And this is something we have to learn to live by. We learn to live in truth, not feelings. Because feelings make us do stupid things. You know, plain and simple, feelings make you do stupid things. This person said something I didn't like, and I feel like I'm mad at them, and I'm going to let them have it. And while you're talking in your feelings, you end up saying all kinds of things that you wish you had never said. You didn't mean that you didn't mean half of what you said. And the parts that you did mean because you're angry and upset and your feelings are running are blown out of proportion beyond where they're supposed to be. 
And so we want to be seeking after God and his truth. Because truth is where we sit. When somebody does harm to us, God says, love them. Because he loves them. Doesn't mean you're going to accept what they're doing and say, okay, what you're doing is good. No. There's a time to say, no, what you're doing is bad. But usually not when you're angry at them. That's not the best time to start speaking. You need to do whatever it takes to kind of get control of yourself. Count to, a, count to 10, count to 100, count to a million, whatever it takes to get control of your emotions before you talk to them. And it's not saying that that anger necessarily is wrong. But to act in your anger is not a wise thing to do. You have to step back and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. There's been times when I was managing that I could not talk to somebody in the moment because I was angry with them. I had to be able to step back and then sit down with them and say, here's the facts, here's what you did, this is why it's wrong. But talking to them right in the middle of it was not necessarily the way to go. It was just, do this. Well, I don't, want, I don't care what you want, do it this way. <laughs> we'll talk about it afterwards, later. Uh, there's times for anger. Anger can be good. It can accomplish the right things. Jesus was angry when he chased the money changers out of the temple. Okay, They were making the, his father's house a den of thieves. These people were coming to worship with, with perfectly good animals, being told their animals had blemish, and hey, by the way, we can sell you this wonderful pre-approved animal, and it only cost you your lamb plus. And then they would take their lamb and sell it to the next sucker who came through the, mm-hmm. <laughs> through the, through the line. Uh, but they're the ones that made their decisions. And Jesus went in and he got angry. Chased them out with the whip, threw their tables around. Now, he was able to be angry and sin not. Most of us can't do that. Most of us cannot be angry and not sin. We usually have to sit back and hold off before dealing in that, with that anger. What part is that he did is considered not sinning? He was cleansing his father's house. Righteous indignation and anger is legitimate. If I get angry because somebody is abusing a child, and as long as I don't go and kill them, (laughs) I'm probably going to be okay. There is a place for righteous anger and protecting of people. It's a very fine line. Jesus had every right because he was actually God, being God, he had the right to do anything he wanted in the temple to cleanse his temple. All right, He was the governing official of the temple, in spite of the ju- priest not believing that. Now, if he didn't have that position and title and he kind of walked in and said, well, this is, a, this is terrible, then there would have been a lot of other things with that because he was not, then he would be in vig- vigilante justice an approved format. And we talked a little bit about this earlier today. Uh, I, as a citizen, do not have the, the right to go gather a whole bunch of other citizens and go hang somebody because he's guilty and we know that he's guilty. And that is including even if he is truly guilty, we as citizens don't have the right to go, you know, drag him out of his house and hang him. You can't judge we can't make that judgment because we are citizens. It's the government's job to do it. And if the government doesn't do it, then they're going to answer to God for not doing their job. And it gets to be an interesting place because 
Jesus had that authority as the Son of God, as as it was his temple actually he was cleaning out, not just just Father, you're going, you're you're taking and destroying the worship of these people. And this is where a head of a family, a head of a government, a head of a church will sometimes have to make hard steps to say, no, this cannot happen in this location. And because they're the head, they have the authority to make decisions that are, that everybody, you know, there's nobody in the church that can go up to somebody and say, well, I think you don't belong in this church. Get out. Okay. Now the pastor, because he's the head of the church, can go, your sin is so bad that you cannot be in this church. You see the difference between the two? The individual now the individual can go to the pastor and say, you know, this person has this sin, this sin, and this sin, and we need to deal with it, and then through prayer can be dealt with. But just going up to somebody, I just don't like you. I think you're sinning so bad that you can't you can't be in this church is not what you're gonna go. You know, we as citizens can't go up to somebody and say, You're so wicked and awful, you gotta get out of the country. And that's not our job as citizens. It's the job of the government, if they're that bad, to kick them out. If they're not allowed to be in this country to kick them out. Our job is to love one another and to build one another up and give the gospel. And that's what our job is as citizens. And this is why it becomes interesting when you read the scriptures because if you take scriptures out of context, if if there are verses talking about wives submit to your husband, that does not mean wives submit to every single man out there in, in, in the world. Uh, and there's a lot of churches that will teach that. The wife is to be submitted to men, not just their husband. And that's a dangerous doctrine for, you know, and puts women into a very you know, maligned state because that's not what the scriptures teach. They're to be, they're to be submitted to their husband or their father and not all men. And this, this is something that's taught by a lot of religions out there. Women are submitted and second-class citizens and, can, and have to be submitted to all men. And this is a problem. We've got to be careful that we take scripture in context, in what it's talking about. There are men that won't work for a woman because they'll say a woman's not supposed to speak in the, speak in the church and the family. And that goes, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says a woman can't run a business and be in charge of a business. All right? Uh, so we need to be careful that we don't take, our, take things out of context. When we talk about the verses on salvation, we've talked about the fact that there's three parts of salvation. There's our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. Those that teach that you can lose your salvation, guess what part they're looking at of the three? Sanctification. They're looking at the sanctified. You're not sanctified. You're not, you're, you're, you, you know, you're not doing this so you can lose your salvation and they're basing it on sanctification verses, not on glorification and, and uh, justification. And those who believe that you can do whatever you want are just basing it, you know, that you are perfect, you should live a perfect life, are basing their, theirs on either justification or glorification verses. And saying, well, see, God says we're perfect, so we, we're supposed to be perfect. And we've got to be careful that we read these verses in what are they talking about and not trying to pull out of them things that aren't true. Hi. All right. So he says, look at me and be merciful and do what you used to do to those that love your name. Uh, David had ups and downs. We've talked about this before. David had very high highs 
and very low lows. Probably. In our day and age, he probably was manic depressant. Uh, he was either very high or very low. He didn't seem to have any in-between ground. He was, you know, he was either praising God, and all through the Psalms we see this. He starts out gloomy and upset, and then all of a sudden he starts focusing on God, and all of a sudden he's way up at the top of the world again. And probably not the best way to be, but this is the way he is. You know, it, is it is what it is. He was used by God in mighty ways. But he says, you know, God just... Uh, Listen, give it, give me mercy. Listen, <laughs> do to me what you used to do when you loved, you know, when, 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 when I felt your love. And again, it goes back to feelings. You know, God loves us whether we feel like he loves us or not. God, if we're, if we're his child, he loves us. He loves the rest of the world too, but he's going to care and love for us if we're his children. Period. And whether I feel like it or not, he loves me. Whether I feel like I deserve it, or not, he loves me. Whether I think he, he should, he still does. <laughs> you know, and this is kind of hard for some of us because we look and we go, God, if you, all, you, know, if you only knew what I've done, God knows exactly what you've done. You know, how many times have you felt, well, if, I, if, if so-and-so in the church knew the way I was, they would not love me. They would not allow me to serve in the church. They would not let me do whatever it is. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even let me through the doors if they just knew all the things that I did all week long. <laughs> well, the point, the point of this all is, though, God already knows. Jesus already died for our sins, and he cares for us in a mighty way. He loves us no matter what. He loves us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What can you do that will make God no longer love you? Yeah. And this is something we've got to keep in mind. There's nothing I can do that will make God not love me because he loved me so much that Jesus died for me. So no matter what I do, I'm going to be loved. And this is why, this one's kind of a powerful one is that God still loves him, and he says, even though I'm not feeling it, keep doing it, what you want me to do. It says in verse 133, Order my steps in your word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Order, arrange. Arrange my steps in your word. Okay, this is very important. In his word, our steps are ordered. If you want to know how to walk the Christian life, you get into the Word. And God does the ordering. God does the directing. Think back in your life. All the things that go well in your life, just think about how they happened when you submitted yourself to God and allowed Him to do whatever it is He wanted to do with you at that moment. And you focused on Him. Peter steps out of the boat, walks on the water when he's focused on Jesus did what he cannot do, okay? Took his eyes off Jesus, looked around, looked at the waves, looked at the storm, dawned on him that I'm walking on the water and I can't walk on water, and started sinking. Have you ever had an experience in your life where you're doing something that you know you can't do spiritually and start sinking when you, when you looked around and took your eyes off Jesus? 
The quote on the PowerPoint this, mo this morning was, obstacles are those scary things that we see when we take our eyes off the goal. You know, if we take our eyes off Jesus, we see all the scary things that are going around in our life. If our eyes are on Jesus, we know that everything's going to work out. And we keep our eyes on him. You can walk through the midst of the greatest storm in your life as long as your eyes are on God. And hopefully you've been through that and experienced that. Where everything seems to be wrong and you're walking through and your eyes are focused on him. And then you kind of look back and go, wow, there was quite a mess back there. You know, that was quite a storm we just went through. But I was hiding in the, in the strong tower. The, the wind and the rain and all blew against the strong tower. I didn't even feel it shaking. Because God is strong enough to handle it all. But if you were out in the storm, it's a whole other story. You get blown around, you get knocked around, you get you wet. You get, you get cold. But if you're inside the building, a strong building, then you have no worries. If you're inside a Quonset hut, you're kind of in trouble. <laughs> but if you're inside God, the strong tower, you can go through the, the worst storm and it doesn't affect you. Especially because he's high ground. He's a rock. He's a solid place. The sand isn't going to wash out from underneath the tower and drop it. He's on a rock and a strong tower, and we hide in him. And it says, order my steps in your words, and let not iniquity have dominion over me. One thing David's recognizing, it's all about God. You know, we need to realize this more in our lives. Everything is about God. God gives us the strength to walk in, our, in the spirit. He gives, us, uh, he gives us our life. He crucifies the flesh. He's the one that takes away our sin. He's the one that protects us. He's the one that gives us power. He's the one that delivers us from evil. He is the one that does everything. And the quicker we get to the point of understanding that he is everything easier our life is because most of the time we struggle hard to make things happen in the flesh God what is the right thing that I have to say to this person to get them to do what I want them to do and God's saying well what I really want you to do is say what I want you to say to get them to do what I want them to do not what you want them to do and too often we will try to manipulate people I've seen people take a doctrine like, you know, to be, to give people, build them up and to edify them and not tear them down. And then they'll use it trying to get others to do what they want. Okay, that's not the purpose of edification and building up. Now, it is something that quite often happens. If you build up somebody and you edify them, quite often they treat you in a good way. But that's not our motive for, for being that way. If that's your motive, it's going to backfire. The good news is it does usually work that way, but it's God touching their heart. Not, well, I'm going to manipulate this person by telling them lots of good things. That's called flattery. You know, if you're flattering somebody, you're trying to get them to do what you want to do. If you're building up and edifying them, you're just trying to say, God sees you this way. And this and make sure it's honest don't try to build up somebody and if it's not honest because nothing backfires quicker than to say something that isn't necessarily true 
And I've shared with you, I had a pastor one time walk past me in a very, in a fairly large church, and he goes, I, I appreciate what you're doing in, you know, for, in the church. And I looked at him, I'm going, what am I doing? Because one thing I knew is I didn't deal with him at all. He did not have a clue what I was doing. They kind of looked at me really strange. Like, nobody's ever asked me that, you know. But, you know, I'm not the type of person to take false flattery. If you, if you say, you know, if he had known what I was doing, that was great. And there was always plenty of things I was doing, but in this case, he didn't. You know, so make sure when you're going to build, build somebody up, you're going to edify and make sure it's true. Now, if you're telling them you're a wonderful person and, and you really love God, make sure that they are a wonderful person that loves God. Now, don't try to flatter them. Uh, old story about a young man, who, you know, a young boy who didn't like this one guy, and his mom says, was there anything you like about him? Well, he thought for a long time. He goes, well, I like the way he whistles. He goes, okay, well, then you just tell him every time you see him, I like the way you whistle. Oh, I like your whistling. And very slowly he started to appreciate the man. You know, edification is not so much for those that we're talking to, but for us to see the good in them and see the change that that brings. If you start thinking good thoughts about people and looking for the good in them, what ends up usually happening, you find a lot more good. You, know, you find a lot more good. A lot of times parents get focused on the bad things their kids are doing and they don't see the good things and the kids feel really bad because all the parents do is criticize them the whole time. And then the kid's saying, well, mom, dad, what about, you know, I did this, I did that, you know, how come you never notice any of the things I did right? And as parents, sometimes we need to be paying more attention to what our kids are doing right than what they're doing wrong. When we're in with People in the church, we need to be looking at what are they doing right rather than what are they doing that what, at least what we perceive to be wrong. And if we can start looking at, well, this person really has a love for the people. You know, they don't express it real well, but they really love the people. And we concentrate on their love, we might start seeing good in them. You know, we might have a personality conflict. They may really irritate the daylights out of us. But if we're looking at what are they doing that's good? How, you know, oh, they really love God. They may not express things very well, but they really love God with all their heart. And start looking at what are they doing. And then you, the more you start looking at what is good, the more you start seeing other good things in them. And I can tell you, try it. Try it with somebody you don't like. Start looking for the good things in them. Start praising them for the good things. And watch what God will do with your attitude. And look for the things they're doing. And if they're really bothering you, you know, just say, God, what is it? Show me the one thing that I can say, thank you, God, for them. And it very well may change your entire life. Because when you're looking at somebody and looking at them with anger and bitterness because of all the things you see them doing wrong, you're going to just keep building upon that. That negative thoughts will keep building and you'll stop seeing anything good in them. And we've got to get to the place where we say, God, help me change this. How many people have you been angry with for a long period of time and then all of a sudden you did one little thing that says thank you or were out of appreciation and all of a sudden the whole thing, your whole relationship with them changes? Because you found that one thing that you could say, oh, you, know, you did this really well. You did this really well. And it's very important for us to order our steps and not let dominion have 
uh, iniquity have dominion over us. Because it's so quick, that bitterness in our heart can destroy our relationship with the one person. And you know what? Sooner or later, it destroys our relationships with lots of people because we become a bitter person. We're angry with this person. The next thing, it flows over to, well, you, you said something nice about this. Well, you can't, you can't be my friend because, you know, how can you, how can you think they're worth something when, you know, and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're starting to tear everybody down. You're starting to look at things in a negative way. Start looking at people for the good that's going on into them. Watch what God will do in your heart, how he will change your heart. Imagine if God looked at all the bad we did. You know, you know he not, he, if, if he all of a sudden said, well, I'm not even going to look at the potential. I just, I'm going to look at everything bad you're doing. You know, what kind of life would we have? No blessings, no, no hope, no anything, because God's saying, ah, you're just all worthless. Do you realize that Jesus, when he was here to pay the debt, went to the cross because he chose to go to the cross? At any time, he could have told, Father, these people are not worth it. Look at the way they're treating me, how bad they're treating me, how sinful they are. Every one of them is a, a terrible sinner, God, and I, a Father, and I'm just not going to the cross. Just let them all go to hell where they belong. Do you realize he could have done that at any time? But he looked at us with incredible love and said, Father, there's potential. There is good that I can see potentially in them. I'm going to die so that they can be, be with us. You know, if God treated us the way we deserve, we'd be in trouble. You know, terrible trouble. The best person that's ever lived in this world would be in trouble if God treated them with what they deserved. Go all the way back to Enoch and Elijah who were translated because they had come as close to perfection as you can, but if God still had treated them the way they deserved at the beginning when they were terrible sinners, he would have destroyed everybody. And this is something we've got to understand is how much God loves us. And then translate that love that he has for us to our love for one another. Between that and the people that he has destroyed? There comes a point where God's patience is totally at an end. Before the days of Noah, when man, every imagination of man was evil, there was no, no redemptiveness in them, and God says, okay, we have gone as far as we're going to go. And this is where we see God is so patient, so merciful, but there comes that point. Sodom and Gomorrah got so bad that God destroyed the entire valley that they, that they were in. The promised land, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, and all those other ites got so bad that God said, okay, children of Israel, go in and destroy them all because they're, they're not repenting. They're no, they are so sinful that we're not going to allow them to go on anymore. We're going to come to the end days when the tribulation comes along and he says, okay, that's it. Everybody who's taken the mark has gone beyond. You're going, you're going to be destroyed. There is the point where God's patience and his mercy gives way. Now, for us, it's a lot longer than most of us would let it go. Most of us go, okay, you had, you had one second to change, you're done. 
God is centuries in the, in the making. The, in the days of Noah, that was 1,500 years after creation before God destroyed mankind. I mean, literally, you get it to the start when Adam and Oh, he could have done it right from the beginning. said, you guys have, you guys have, yeah, you guys, you sin, goodbye, humans are gone. But yet, he goes, there's that op- there's going to be this opportunity. Some of you are going to follow me. And so we see this over and over that God's mercy is so enduring. He is so just. The, the Christian church, after the, after the fall of, Europe, of, uh, of Jerusalem, grew and grew. And around 400 AD, Satan got hold of it through the Catholic church. And it has become nationalized and slowly over time stopped being a Christian church and started being a church mixed with all kinds of mythologies and, and, and strange doctrines. God at any time during that, after 400 years, could have said, okay, my church is gone, goodbye. But he had a remnant still following him, still trying to bring the Christianity in. And then, of course, in the 14 and 1500s, we had the Reformation and the Protestant movement where they protested and and brought us back to the scriptures. And God says, okay, here we go. Here's your, here's a revival. <laughs> we had a revival at Noah. We had a revival at the promised land. We had a revival at Jesus. We had a revival here at, at the Protestant room. And then we've had several revivals since. And God says, okay. But God knows when the people are at an end. Where there is no more hope. Now, will there be one or two more? Who knows? And he's finally ready to judge. Who knows? But at that point, he's saying, it's done. Final. There are those that say that God's got a number of people that are going to become Christians. And when that number's reached, then the rapture will happen and the tribulation will happen. I kind of believe that. There's, God knows exactly who that last person to be saved is going to be. So I would encourage everybody, go out and save as many people as you can so we can get to that number quick. You know, get out there, lead these people to Christ so that we can get to that number quick and, get, and, and have the rapture occur. We just don't know what that number is. I believe there's an actual number that God knows because God knows the beginning from the end. He knows, he knows when the last person will be there. He knows the date too because he knows when that person will come to him. Kind of a combination of the two because he knows when that last person... He knows the date because he knows when that last person is going to get saved and, and at that point... Nobody else after that. So, verse 134 Deliver me from the oppression of man, so will I keep your precepts. Deliver me. All these verses in this section seem to be God, do your work. God, deliver me. If the more we trust in Him, the better off we are. God is our deliverance in the middle of, in, of all these things that go on. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You delivered my soul. You set my table. You set a table before my enemies. Have you really thought about all of this? It all comes down to God. And how often do we get in the way of what God is trying to do? God, deliver me from these enemies as I walk right into the trap. God, keep me out and keep me away from them as I put a blindfold on my eyes and walk straight into the, the trouble. 
God, help me, help me know what to say, and I'm going to speak without even thinking about asking God. The words of that, I've always thought about that a little bit, the words of that scripture somehow change the context of what, because most people would say, yea, that I walk through the valley of death. You're just when you say shadow of the valley of death. I'm trying to figure out what that is versus For somebody who's following God, it is only the shadow of the valley of death because death to us, death to us is walking into the kingdom. So for a Christian, it really is the shadow of the valley of death. Because once I physically die, I step into God's presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this is why I shared, when I was young, I used to tell everybody you know, when I was a teenager, the worst thing you can do to me is almost kill me. Because if you killed me, I went home. If you almost killed me, I had to suffer the pain of whatever you did to me. You know, do, we, do we truly believe that, though, as a Christian? That the worst you can do to me is almost kill me. Because being killed is the greatest thing that can happen to you. Paul says, I'm torn between these two. The desire to go home and be with God, which is better, but to stay with you is better for you. Okay, and that's what he's telling the people. He goes, I'm ready to go home. You know, I'm ready to go to heaven and be done with everything. But by spending time with you, you know, all the people he was ministering to, it's better for you. And I understand that. For me, I would just as soon go to heaven and be done with it. But as a pastor, it's better for the flock that I'm dealing with that I'm here teaching and, and helping people walk closer to God. Now, if there comes a time when people aren't walking and getting closer to God, I'm going to say, God, take me home because this is wasting my time. I don't think it's going to happen because if I pre preach his word and teach his word, people are going to grow. Maybe not as fast as I'd like to see them. Maybe not in the way that I would like to see them. But ultimately, our desire should be to go home. God said, precious is the death of my saints in his sight. Do we truly believe that God says it's precious? Why is it precious? They go home. Okay. And I keep emphasizing this. Death for those of us that are Christians is the doorway to home. It's a problem. Probably never thought about that because he's actually killing the Christians. No, I'm sure he wasn't. No, because he, was he was thinking he was purifying the Jewish faith and getting rid of this troublemaking group of people. So no, he didn't see it that way. He saw it as pur purifying. But by understanding, he understood these verses that death for the believer is entrance into God's kingdom. And that's a powerful thought. What can keep you from God? Nothing. No, height, nor depth, nor width, nor principalities, nor angels, nor anything that under, and under the sun or you know, under, in this, above or below, nothing can keep us away from the love of God. Do we truly believe these things? This is what it talks about. Order my steps in your truth. Keep me in your truth. You know, make, uh, deliver me from the oppression of man. So will I keep your precepts. Why do I keep his precepts? Because I know these precepts. I cannot keep his precepts without knowing them. I cannot keep his commandments without knowing them. I cannot keep his testimony without knowing them. The word of God is the most important thing in our life. 
with no exception. We must get to know his word and study his word. Find a way to study his way. Get to know what it means and follow it very carefully. You think that we uh, try to learn the difficult things and we know less about it? We jump ahead of our... Probably. Oftentimes we look at somebody and say, well, they're going through this, why can't I? And we try to jump from kindergarten to, to eighth grade or to college. Uh, well, so-and-so is doing it. I should, I should be able to do this. Especially if you're physically older, but maybe spiritually younger. Yeah. This is, I've shared with you, the scariest time I ever had was when I was asked when I was in my 30s to teach the senior adult men's class. I was scared to death because in my mind, these guys had been walking with God all their life. They were, they were the superstars. They were the giants. They knew, they knew the word better than I could possibly know the word at that time after only having studied it for 25 years. So these guys, I was sure, would need all this time. So I spent all, the, all that week studying, literally. I was in God's word studying that lesson. And... The first word out of my mouth was something I thought was elementary, literally thought was elementary, and I don't remember what it was at this time. And I'm going on to the next truth because I'm going, okay, we all know this, and, I'm, and I made my statement, and I'm going on, and one of the guys raised his hand and goes, could you explain what you just said? And all of a sudden it dawned on me, these guys may be older, they may have been the, the deacons and the teachers, but they haven't spent any time really studying God's word. And it really broke my heart. But it was a great lesson to me. What I have found in my lifetime of walking with so many Christians, are there, there's people who have been Christians, and I, and I don't doubt that they were Christians, but they have not learned God's word. And they've been sometimes 30, 40, 50 years in the church, and they have not spent enough time in God's word to really know his word. Now they could tell you the story of creation and Cain and Abel and you know they could tell you the story of Noah and the ark and Abraham, you know. They could tell you all the Bible stories. But they had never appropriated the knowledge beyond just a story and made it really part of their life and who they are. They don't understand the meaning of it. They didn't understand the meanings behind the stories. You know, I share with people and I'm going, look at Jesus in all these different points. You know, Jesus wrestling with Jacob. Jesus talking with Abraham and telling him he's getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The picture of the tabernacle and every aspect of the tabernacle is Jesus Christ. Every aspect of the major sacrifices is Jesus Christ. And we go, here's Jesus, here's Jesus, here's Jesus. We read the book of Numbers and we see that the, the very camping of the children of Israel formed a cross when seen from above with the numbers of the people. You know, and this is what Balak and Balaam saw when they looked down from a high place. They saw the cross. The cross was put on the, on the door for, for the Passover lamb when they hit the lintels, the top and the bottom of the door forms, forms a cross, throws a stick of wood into the river Jordan and the axe head floats, the cross being thrown into the picture of death and, and the axe head or, or man floats to the top. You know, the bitter waters at Mira that people are griping about, they throw the wood in the cross and it makes it sweet. But what makes our problem sweet and endurable 
the cross of Jesus Christ being, being brought in, destroying the problems and bringing Christ in, on, in it, makes it so that we can endure the problems. And all pictured all through the scriptures, you know, as we see Christ being lifted up all through the scriptures, and we start realizing he needs to be lifted up in my life. Not just a knowledgeable assent to, yes, God, I'm, I deserve the punishment, and I accept you. But my full life dependent upon him. My life crucified in Christ, living through him because he is the one that brings joy out of pain. He's the one that brings joy out of hardship. He's the one that guides us and walks us through the valley of the shadow of death, puts our table in the midst of our enemies. You know, think about that. That verse says we get to have a picnic in the midst of our enemies with Jesus. Why? Because he doesn't fear the enemy. The enemy fears him. He doesn't take us out of the problem. He gives us joy in the problems when we're focused upon him because he brings the cross in and says, this is just the flesh being crucified. So much of the, that we look at and he says, I want to crucify the flesh, the destruction of the flesh, the removal from the flesh. Egypt represents the flesh. The children of Israel encamped in Egypt for centuries and God says, now it's time to leave the flesh behind. Follow me. And he led them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He led them everywhere they were to go, away from the world and sin, into victorious living in the promised land. Spiritual victory. And it takes a walk. It takes time. It, and if we fight it hard, we're like the children of Israel, wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. You know, we see this whole thing. The children of Israel wandered for 40 years on a trip that should have taken no more than two weeks. Why? Because they fought. How often do we fight against God saying, God, I'm just not going to do what you want are asking me to do. I just won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. And God says, okay, let's wander around in the desert for a while. You know, you don't want to enter into victory. You don't want to enter the spiritual life. We'll just wander around in the desert for a while until you finally are willing to pay attention and let your flesh be crucified. And he keeps testing and testing and testing. And hopefully, as we mature in Christ, we start responding quicker and quicker to the lessons. It doesn't take two decades to learn the lesson. It doesn't take six months to learn the lessons. We finally get to the place where, okay, God, what do you want? <laughs> yeah. Okay, God, uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> we'll listen. Or do we keep fighting with him? You know, God's going to win in the long run. Always going to win in the long run. And we just want to be careful how hard we fight against him. Because he'll, he'll just let us wander around in the desert till we die if that's what we want either physically or spiritually. He prefers spiritually, that we die spiritually so we can enter into the promised land. But if you want to argue and fight with him long enough, he'll let you die spirit, uh, physically as well in the desert, in the, in the wandering, and take you home and say, you lost out on a lot of reward because you would not let me kill, crucify your flesh. Verse 135, make your face to shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. I love this. 
make your face shine and teach me your, shadow, your statutes. Do you know what it is to just feel the pleasure of God upon your life? Probably not all the time, but hopefully you've had some time where it just feels like God is just pleased with what you're doing. The high priest pray, uh, prayer was that God's face would shine upon his people. That's what they heard on their way out of, out of service from the, from the tabernacle. God's face to shine upon you. That we turn to God. We've given him a sacrifice. We've turned, we've turned our life over to him. We've devoted our life to him. And to have his face shine upon us. To do what he's wanting us to do. Just to surrender to him. And it says, you know, make your face shine upon me, your servant, and teach me your statutes. Again, notice this. Everything on this section of this verse is, God, you do the work. We have to recognize God does the work. He delivers us from the evil. He teaches us. He cleanses us. He's the one that does the work. And again, we go back to what Psalm 23 says, you know, that it's him that does it. He's the one leading. He's the one setting the table. He's the one bringing us to, to still water so that we can drink. He's the one setting us up in a place where we can eat, even in the presence of our enemies. He is the one that does it. What makes that easy for me? All I have to do is give up. Just surrender to God. Let him do what needs to be done. And it's not easy. Believe me, I know it's not easy. But you know what? When you get done on the other side of surrendering to him, you're almost ready to kick yourself. Why did I take so long to give up? It's like, man, I fought and I fought and I fought and I fought, and this is where God wanted to take me. The children of Israel is a great example. Fighting God for 40 years before they go into the promised land where they get to just have food all over the place. When they entered into the promised land, finally under Joshua, they ate the first fruits and God says, okay, I no longer have to give you manna because you've got more food than you're ever going to want now in spiritual victory. Oh, when you get there, it's so wonderful. <laughs> you know, and, and we only get there in different pieces of our life at any one time. I think if we could ever get there all the way, then we'd go to heaven because we'd be perfect. <laughs> But each time we look at this, it's God saying, isn't it wonderful? Taste and see that the Lord is good. See this blessing that he's given you and follow him in the blessing. Taste and see that he is good. And each time we taste, we go back to that beginning. You know, oh man, God, you're so wonderful. I just want to praise you because you're so wonderful. You've done so many good things, God. I want to do more for you. And it should become as we get more mature and we get see him doing more and more and we start getting comfortable with what, how much he cares for us. Most of the time when we start out as Christians, we don't fully trust God. We don't trust that he's got our best interest in, ha in mind. We don't trust that he's only going to allow good things to us if we just trust him. It's like the teenager telling mom and dad, well, you just want to take all my fun away. No, I'm just trying to keep you from destroying your life. You know, going to this party with your best friend where all the alcohol and drugs and sex is going on is not a good place for you to go. You just don't want me to have fun. You want to ruin my reputation around. <laughs> but this is our attitude so oftentimes with God. 
God, you're just trying to ruin my fun. You just don't want me to do anything. And God's saying, no, I want the absolute best for you if you would just understand it. What you want is not what's good for you most of the time. What we want, what I want is not usually good for me unless it is what God wants. And that's why I need to re allow my flesh to be crucified and seek what he wants. And the last verse in this section, rivers of waters run down my eyes because they keep not your law. And he's saying, when I'm disobedient, it brings tears. And hopefully this is where we're at. When we're disobedient to God, it brings conviction. It brings tears. Unfortunately, it's not usually where everybody's at. David, when he first sinned with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, went for over a year out of fellowship with God before he finally came back into fellowship with God. How long does sometimes it take for us to just repent and get back into fellowship? God's saying, change your light, change your heart. Confess your sin and get it under the blood of Christ and be back in fellowship. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And this is not a salvation issue. It is a relationship issue. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ. But if you have sin blocking that relationship, he says, I can't come to you because of the sin that you're holding dear to your heart. We need to confess. We need to get rid of it so that we can come back into fellowship with him. And it's amazing. If you've ever walked away from God for any period of time, when you finally give up and you confess your sins and say, God, I have been really messing up. You know, the wonderful thing is he accepts you right back and says, you are so blessed. I've got a plan for you. You've been, you've been walking around like, like Abraham 20 years in disobedience. You know, we think of Abraham as this great man of faith. He was called out of the Ur of Chaldees. God said, leave your family behind. So what's he do? He takes his father and he takes Lot. And he goes up the Euphrates to Haran and stops. He stays there for 20 years. Disobedient in his leaving, disobedient in not continuing until his father dies. Then he finally gets up and says, okay, God, I'm ready to go. And he still takes Lot with him. Okay, so even though he's now being partially obedient, he's still not fully obedient. And you know, the good news about that is God still blessed him. Even though he wasn't being completely obedient, God still blessed him. Now, he blessed him more when Lot went his way. Okay, when Lot was separated from him, then the real blessings happened because now he's in full obedience to God, doing what he's supposed to be doing. Now, how soon might, might Isaac have been born if, if, if Abraham had been in obedience? Who knows? Might have, got, might have got Isaac a lot earlier in his life if he had been obedient to God. Because God does not give us the full blessings that he has in store for us when we're being in, living in disobedience. So we need to be very careful to live in this obedience and be sorrowful when we're not there. To be able to follow after him. All right, we're going to close in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, teach us to be obedient. Teach us to see the honorable things in people and learn to see what you see in them, that you love them. 
so that we can be loving of them enough to give them the gospel, to see them grow in Christ. And we just thank in Jesus' name. Amen.